0: Have you ever built a house before? Oh, I heard yeses. I was supposed to hear noes. I, I, I needed noes for my next line, which was me neither. But I did build a tree house once with my dad that then we had to take out of the tree and put on the ground. So now it's like a ground house, which I think is the same as just a regular house. Uh, but there's a few things that uh, I learned. Uh, To build any sort of a room or house, you need to be an architect. An architect kind of defines the width of the house, the height of the house, the depth of the house, and once you've got all that figured out, then you can start actually designing everything else that goes inside of it, where the lights are going to be, where the doors are going to be, windows, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, I am not an architect, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express once, so... I had to figure out what kind of space we had and what it was going to look like, and once we kind of got those dimensions down, it helped us understand what we were actually going to build. This is kind of what Peter does in the letter that he sends out to the Christian churches that he is writing to. We're kicking off a brand new series this week called Never Let Go, and it's based out of 1st and 2nd Peter. I'm going to do my best this summer to actually get us into 2nd Peter, but I'm making no promises. 1st Peter has been so rich as I've continued to engage and study with it that I know it's going to take up a chunk of our summer. And what we're doing this morning is really kind of setting out the width, the, the height, and the depth of 1 Peter, because that's what Peter does at the beginning of his first letter. And so this morning is going to be a bit of an introduction, helping us understand uh, what's going on. Uh, The width of the house is really found in verses 1 and 2. This is Peter telling us, and really them, but also us, who we are. Uh, The height of the house is him talking about who God is, telling us about God. That we find in verses 3 through 5. And verses 6 through 12 is kind of the depth of the house that Peter's setting up, the depth of this letter, telling us what this is going to be about. Some of the themes that we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks as we spend time walking through this beautiful, gorgeous, deep, impactful, and very practical letter that Peter writes. So, uh, what I'd like to do this morning is kind of look at those three dimensions. That Peter gives us in these first 12 verses. But before we do that, I'd like to just even back up one more step. Let's ask a couple of questions. Uh, Who is Peter and what's going on at this time? We'll start with who in the heck is Peter? Peter is actually not even his given name. His given name was Simon. Uh, Simon was actually a fisherman in the northern part of Israel along the Sea of Galilee. We don't know a ton uh, about uh, his life as a fisherman, other than the style of boat and nets that uh, the Bible describes seem to indicate that he probably uh, owned a fairly successful small business. His dad was a fisherman, brothers, and Peter was, Simon, was a fisherman before Jesus called him. He winds up becoming one of the 12 disciples that Jesus calls. In fact, Jesus actually changes his name, or at least gives him another name, a nickname, if you will. uh, Petros, which means rock, all right, before Dwayne Johnson. There was Simon the fisherman, okay? And uh, Jesus renames him Peter, which just means rock. And we'll we'll get to why he renames him that in just a second. Uh, Peter was not just a fisherman, but once he left his nets to follow Jesus, he actually became kind of the de facto leader of Jesus' disciples. Peter was the first one to actually uh, recognize and say publicly and out loud that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, Peter was a man of action. He wanted to go uh, to war for Jesus and wanted to go to war with Jesus. In fact, on the night that Jesus gets betrayed by Judas, another one of the 12 disciples, Peter's the only cat that pulls out a sword and tries to hack somebody's head off. Like, he's ready. He's a man of action. He's not going to sit back and let things go. Now, he wasn't a very good soldier because he just caught homeboy's ear, but still, like, he was down, right? He was ready. Peter was also uh, one who denied Jesus. Um, Just hours after he cuts off the ear of someone who came to arrest Jesus, just hours later, he denies that he even knows Jesus. And not just once, but three times. Uh, Peter is also one who shows us what Jesus' favorite thing to do is. Do you know what Jesus' favorite thing to do is? Forgive us. It's Jesus' favorite thing to do. And he shows it by what he does uh, with Peter after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He finds Peter and he forgives Peter. And not just forgives Peter, he restores Peter back to what he had originally said he was, a rock. In fact, a rock that Jesus was actually going to build his church on. This is a big, big deal. Peter uh, walks on water. Peter preaches the gospel for the very first time, about 80 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, Uh, Jesus resurrects. He spends the next 40 days uh, interacting with the disciples and others. And then he tells the disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait on the Holy Spirit. They spend another 40 days where they're praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to to be sent And on Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit comes and Peter's the one who preaches the gospel. And 3,000 people repent and give their lives to Jesus, begin to follow him, get baptized. Peter's is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But eventually, he kind of hands that off to James, who's the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. James kind of becomes the lead pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, Peter, over the next uh, 30 years about, winds up uh, heading to eventually Rome, where he then is kind of the pastor of the church there in Rome. Uh, Peter is kind of one of those guys that, I don't know, me personally, I just, I love him because he's like impetuous and like he can't hold himself back. And, and he's always like trying to do the right thing, but a lot of times trying to do the right thing makes him do the wrong thing. And he's always like saying stupid stuff, right? In fact, he's trying to correct Jesus at times, like God, the creator, all powerful, all knowing, right? And he's like, yo, 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 Jesus, that's not how it goes. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. All right? I see myself in Peter, someone who's passionate but flawed, someone that in God's grace and because of God's mercy, he chooses to do amazing things through, not because of how awesome Peter is, but because of how awesome God is. And I hope all of us see a little bit of ourselves in Peter. Now we're getting to near the end of Peter's life. Peter actually writes this letter sometime around 60 to 62 A.D. So it's about 30, just over 30 years after Jesus has resurrected and gone back to sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And uh, Peter's writing this letter from Rome to Christians that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, We'll get to where that is. I'll show you a map in in just a minute. But uh, just simply know this. Uh, Peter's writing to people who are in a tough spot. And Peter understands. You see, persecution uh, really kind of broke out in the Roman Empire uh, against Christians uh, starting right around this time. Now, uh, suffering and persecution had been going on for Christians uh, for the last 30 years. It really kind of started in Jerusalem. Uh, when Jews were really starting to persecute uh, Christians, and so uh, Christians had to then flee Jerusalem and go to other parts of the Roman Empire. That's kind of how God used that suffering to actually spread the good news of Jesus. It's why Peter eventually himself winds up in Rome. But during this time now, around 60, persecution is starting to ramp up for Christians, not simply from folks in Judaism, but from folks who were just regular old parts of the Roman Empire, uh, and here's why: Judaism was actually uh, a legal religion to practice in Rome. It was not the official religion. That's not what I'm saying. But it was a uh, legal religion. It was uh, you could practice Judaism, and in, in fact, uh, Rome didn't mind Judaism. They thought that the folks that uh, um, the Jews that that were um, Follow Judaism, they, they're like, they're weird. That's what Romans thought at the time. They're strange. They believe in one God. <laughs> How dumb is that? Like, well, there's tons of gods you could believe in. They only pick one. Uh, so the Romans they didn't, they, they thought that Judaism was strange, but Jews were good citizens. And they just thought, as long as you're a good citizen, man, you know what? You want to do some, some strange stuff, that's fine. Well, when Christianity comes on the scene, Rome just kind of thought, oh, it's just a subset of Judaism. And Judaism was protected, you could practice it. But over the first few years and then decades, it became very clear that Christianity was not Judaism. And so the protected right that Jews had to practice Judaism did not apply to Christians. And that kind of gets us to what's going on. What's going on? I told you Peter writes the first letter sometime around 60, 62 A.D. Nero is in power. Nero is brutal, probably one of, if not the most, certainly top two or three, most brutal Caesars or emperors in the Roman Empire. Uh, Peter's actually going to die about somewhere between three to five years after he writes this letter. Persecution is starting to ramp up, uh, especially because around 64, 65, uh, Nero started some fires in, well, historians think it was probably Nero who started some fires in Rome. And they started it in the poor area of Rome because he kind of wanted to clear it out so that then he could rebuild it. The fire starts, well, it gets out of hand, winds up burning like a third to a half of Rome. People are up in arms, and uh, Nero needs a scapegoat. So he says, uh, Christians, it was Christians that did it. They're not a protected religion. Uh, they're a easy kind of thing for Nero to target and persecution really starts to ramp up. Uh, In fact, there's just like terrible things that happened. Uh, Peter himself was martyred, crucified, upside down. Uh, Nero would round up uh, followers of Jesus and uh, impale them, cover them in tar and light them on fire to be torches for his parties. That's That's how awful this dude was. And Nero is the one who is uh, in power at this time. Uh, when Paul writes 1 Peter, it's not at the kind of zenith of the persecution that Christians were facing, but it was starting to ramp up. And one would kind of expect, based on everything that I've just said, that this would be the time that Peter would say to these followers of Jesus, hey, it's time for us to like resist. It's time for us to stand up for our rights to revolt. I mean, if there was ever a time to do that, certainly this would it, this would be it, right? And we Americans who think and love our freedom, right? Like, heck yeah, let's go. Let's do that. The problem is, is Peter actually tells those Christians who are living under a way more oppressive regime than you or I have ever experienced from either side of the aisle. Peter doesn't tell them to stand up and revolt. Peter actually tells them to do the exact opposite. He tells them to obey the emperor and the governors and the authorities. Uh, Friends, I'm just telling you, the liberal left of America and the conservative right of America will both find themselves equally offended and uncomfortable by what God tells us in this letter. So buckle up. Um, Suffering is actually a theme that's going to pop up time and time again within the letter of 1 Peter. It was happening then. It happens uh, today all over our world. Uh, It's beginning to happen more and more for followers, genuine followers of Jesus, who trust that God's word is truth. Uh, I will not pretend, though, that you and I as Americans experience the kind of suffering that Paul talks about in, or excuse me, Peter, I'm going to do that a lot, Paul, Peter, blah, blah, blah. Peter talks about in this letter, And that Christians across our world in places like Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Middle East or Christians in China are are going to experience. But suffering nonetheless is cropping up more and more, even within Western society, even here in the States. This suffering, though, is not simply due to a broken world. It's due to actually following Jesus. Look, I'm just saying, man, to live as God asks us to live, to trust that God's word is authoritative, And what it said 2000 years ago and before is still true for us today. To take a stand for the Bible's teaching on things like sexuality and abortion, on things like gun control and immigration reform. Friends, I'm just saying, if you wanna follow Jesus with the genuine faith, you're going to find yourself being an outcast from the left of this country and the right of this country. You will experience suffering. And quite honestly, if you're not experiencing any at all, You may not be following Jesus very well. Ooh, tea's a little spicy this morning, isn't he? A little bit. But if we're going to be people of the Word, we've got to let the Word shape who we are, how we think, and how we live our lives. That has to be the foundation for everything that the Christian does. If we suffer, Simply because we want to do things our way, that is not a biblical form of suffering. But when we suffer because we are understanding what God's word calls us to, there is an inheritance to be found that we're going to see in just a second. So, this morning, let's start with God's word. We're going to begin by talking about the width of the house, this letter that Peter is writing. Let's read chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, or some people say Cappadocia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace, and peace Be yours in abundance. I love Peter starts off by simply just saying, look, I'm an apostle. Nobody gives him any grief for that. Anytime Paul says the same thing, Paul's like, all the letters he writes, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's got to go and explain why he's an apostle. Peter, he doesn't even need to do that. Everybody's like, yep, that dude's an OG. Been with him from the beginning, all right? He's been, and so he just says, look, I'm an apostle. And then he says who he's actually writing to. God's elect those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You're like, oh good, we're about to get into, did God elect us or did we choose God? You know what the answer to that is? Yes. Yes. Both are actually taught. Right here, it's very clear. God has elected followers of Jesus, chosen us with foreknowledge. And it doesn't just mean that God looked down the annals of time and saw who was going to say yes and then said, okay, those are the ones that I'm electing. No, no, no. This actually indicates that God, so is it like two different sides of the same coin? Yeah, both are true. You have to choose to accept Christ. But God has also chosen you. We're not going to spend a lot of time getting into theological debates about this. Both are true, and we just allow God's word to be God's word. Even when it's hard for us to kind of put it together in our heads, both of these things are true. Now, uh, before I jump in and talk about what it means to be an exile, or uh, depending upon what uh, version you're reading it in, it might say sojourner, it might say foreigner. Uh, um, he's actually going to couple this Greek word uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, with another Greek word where he says foreigners and aliens, or sojourners and aliens, or exiles and foreigners, all kind of saying something similar. Before I jump in there, let me just show you what we're looking at, all right? So this is a, a Google map of modern day, like you see at the top left corner, Italy, okay, Rome, that's where Peter is living, and that's where he is writing from. Now, if you were to follow down the boot, go south of Greece, and come up over to Izmir, Bursa, Ankara, Antalya, that's modern-day Turkey, okay? That is what we would call Asia Minor in the New Testament, all right? So flip over to uh, back then. That's what you're looking at right there. That's Turkey, okay? So you see a Cappadocia, uh, um, Galatia, uh, all the places. You've got big cities there like Ephesus, Colossae. All right, those are all letters you probably heard that Paul has written um, to churches that are there. That's what's called Asia Minor. That's where these folks are at, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all right? Pontus as well. Paul's writing to Christians who live in this part of the Roman Empire, and they are exiles. Uh, Dr. Scott McKnight, um says this about exiles. He says, there is no doubt that the literal meaning of these terms, okay, exiles, sojourners, foreigners, aliens, okay, put those kind of four English words in your head. There is no doubt that the literal meaning of these terms refers to people in specifically low social conditions. Most, not all, but most of the early Christians were of a low socioeconomic class. But many were actually slaves. Uh, Jesus is pretty good news to someone who doesn't have a whole lot. Uh, the Greek word for strangers, okay, which is what is used here in chapter 1, verse 1, and again in chapter 2, verse 11, refers to people who reside in a place uh, but who stay there for only a brief time. These are temporary residents, okay? So, in other words, this wasn't their home country for most of them. Uh, then, In chapter 2, verse 11, there's another word, this uh, Greek word for foreigners or aliens, and that refers to people who reside in a given place without legal protection and rights provided for citizens. In other words, these are non-citizen residents of Rome. A lot of people that lived in the Roman Empire were not Roman citizens, and they did not have the same kind of protections that Roman citizens have. In fact, uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. We don't know about Peter, actually. That's why Paul actually says he wants his trial to go to Rome When Paul gets arrested, he calls on his citizenship as a Roman. Not everybody had that. In fact, uh, most of the folks that are part of the early church did not have that kind of protection. This is what uh, Dr. McKnight says He says, While they are socially strange and foreign in Asia Minor, while they are excluded, powerless, and homeless in the Roman Empire, in God's family, they are citizens, they are included. They are royalty, and they are at home as God's people. So let me talk real quickly about why this matters for us, the width of this letter, the opening, what Paul says about us. It's because we too, friends, are God's elect. God knew what was coming in your life. God knew what was going to happen. God knew where you would live and the time that you would live in it. He knew the things that would change and shift throughout your lifetime. And God chose you to show off his glory, chose you to experience his mercy, chose to save you that you might then give him glory by the way that you live your life in this world, in this day. Look, I get it. Uh, Most of us are not low on the socioeconomic kind of strata. We're Americans. We tend to be wealthier than the vast majority of the rest of the world. But there are some that are part of the family of God here at TLC that you find yourself struggling. You find yourself being an outcast because of either your past or difficult things that have happened. And I simply want to say to you, man, you are in good company, friends. Because that's exactly who God decided to show off his grace and power to in the early church. And he's still doing that today with us. That's the width. Okay? Now, Paul is going to move from talking about who we are to the height of the house, to the height of this letter, the verticality of who God is. And so he busts into praise. Look at what he says. Read along with me. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The height of the house starts off with praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Why? Because of the mercy that he has lavished on us. Because of his great mercy. Friends, I'm just telling you, every single one of us is here because of the mercy of God. I will be the first to admit I do not deserve to be here, don't deserve to be a pastor don't deserve to be a Christian, don't deserve to know Jesus, don't deserve to have experienced his forgiveness, don't deserve to have the spirit indwell me. It's just because of God's great mercy. And oh man, I'm telling you, like if that doesn't make me want to bust out in praise, and look, I get it, man. I, I show up the same as you on a Sunday morning, and we sing songs of praise, don't we? And there, and there's times when I'm singing it, but I, I like it's just words that are coming out of my mouth. I don't, I don't feel the awe that this mercy ought to produce in me. And so I read something like this, and there are times when I just, I just have to stop and slow down just for a second and just be like, man, Lord, like, don't ever let me forget it. Don't ever let me just kind of just go through the motions. God, would you let me remember? And feel that awe again of what you've done. Everything starts with God's great mercy. And then there's just like this whole like cascade effect that begins to fall out of God's mercy. All right? It's like this uh, chain reaction. Because of God's mercy, uh, Paul begins to, excuse me, Peter begins to list a number of things. The first he says, we have a new birth. Okay? Because of God's great mercy, we have a new birth. This is salvation. Think of the season of spring. All right, We're just kind of coming out of the season of spring, moving into the season of summer. Man, everything that looked dead is now like bursting with life. You, you smell spring, right, in the rain, in the, in the leaves, sometimes in the ragweed, all right, and then you can't smell stuff for a little while. But spring, right, stuff bursts back to life. When you know God's mercy, when you've experienced God's mercy, it brings a new birth. And because of the new birth, then, we move into a living hope. The living hope that we have, that's the next piece of the chain reaction, is simply because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that means you and I are going to get resurrected as well. That's a living hope. It's a hope that doesn't disappoint us. It's simply that because Jesus was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. This life is not all that there is. We aren't living for today, we are living for that day that'll preach, you know what I'm saying? I worked hard on that line for y'all. I was like, "We're not living for today, we're living for that day." All right, that felt awkward, so that's um. But no, like that's for real. It's not just about what's happening to me now. I'm willing to stand up. I'm willing to be an outcast. I'm willing to trust God's word even when it's uncomfortable why? Because I'm not living for this day. Way too often as Americans, man, we got a great life, and so we live for this day. I do. And I'm trying to remind myself that because of God's great mercy, I'm a new person, a new creation. I've experienced a new birth. Therefore, I have a living hope that no matter what happens in this life, I'm going to rise again because Jesus was resurrected. I, too, will be resurrected. And that cascades down into the reality that we have an inheritance with Jesus, a new birth, a living hope, an inheritance with Jesus. And this inheritance can never spoil, rust, or die. Do you know what spoils, rusts, and dies on earth? Everything. Do you know what spoils, rusts, and dies in heaven? Nothing. And that inheritance... God is not only protecting it for us, he is protecting us for it. All because of God's great mercy. Because of God's great mercy, we get a new birth, a living hope that leads to an inheritance that God is protecting for us and protecting us and our faith for it. Friends, the height of our house stretches all the way to the heavens. Our house is wide and our house is high because of, God's great mercy and all that it brings. And now we move into the depth of the house, the depth of the letter. This is Paul starting to open up to us what he's going to talk about, what's on his mind, why he's writing this letter. So let's keep reading verses six through 12. It says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though for, though now for a little while For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. You're like, ooh, that's kind of weird at the end there. What's he talking about? We'll get to it in just a minute. This, friends, is the depth of the house, the letter. Paul's laying out a few things that he wants to deal with. Uh, Verses six and seven, he says that suffering will prove and has proven the genuineness of their faith. These are individuals that because of their following Jesus, because they've said yes to Jesus, they're being singled out. They're not able to get ahead. Would you still say yes to Jesus if it meant your job? Would you still say yes to Jesus if it meant that that college was gonna kick you out? Would you still say yes to Jesus if friends were going to reject you? Would you still say yes to Jesus and, and follow him if it meant you might have to move away? Their suffering has proven the genuineness of their faith. And their faith is worth far more than gold and their faith brings glory and honor to God. Verses 8 and 9 goes on to say that genuine faith then results in salvation. The, the suffering has just proven that what they have is true. It's real, man. It's legit. But that real faith in Jesus is what actually brings salvation. And then in verses 10 to 12, he begins to explain that all of the Old Testament, what he talks about the prophets and what they were trying to understand and figure out, the entire Old Testament, all of the ancients were looking for the time that Jesus would come. All right, And they were pointing to, the, to what you and I experience every single day of our lives. Not just that, but even to the suffering and salvation that we would experience as a result of Christ. So let me just kind of close us this morning by talking about why this matters, okay? Why we, why we even, or why Peter and us this morning are laying out kind of the, the width and the height and the depth of what we're gonna be looking at over the next number of weeks. Um, a number of years ago, I had a young guy uh, came to live with Brendan and I for a little while, newer in his faith, uh, and was from kind of the Vegas area. And uh, about eight months later, his dad uh, came to visit. And uh, I remember uh, hanging out with his dad, and all his dad uh, kept talking about was uh, he just couldn't get over how green Michigan was. ha, <laughs> ha. I, like I didn't, like I didn't even think about that would be a topic of conversation, and he was just like, "Man, it's so green here, like the trees are like everywhere, and like the grass, like y'all got is everywhere, like even stuff like that shouldn't be green is green." You ever been in something for so long that you just don't even recognize it anymore? You don't notice it. You start to take it for granted. That's what Peter's reminding us of here. I take my health for granted at times, right? I take uh, my freedom for granted at times. I take my air conditioning for granted sometimes. I take for granted the fact that I'm going to have lunch again today, and I had it yesterday, and I'm probably going to have it again on Monday. Take it for granted. Why? Because it just comes. So I'm I'm not often aware of it. And Peter is reminding us that, man, the entire prophets of the, past looked forward to the day that you and I live in. Angels themselves in heaven don't experience the salvation and redemption that you and I have the opportunity to experience. It says that they kind of crane their neck looking down to try to get a glimpse of what this is like. Friends, we live in this age of the church post-Jesus life, death, and resurrection. We live in the resurrection age, and I get it. Our lives aren't perfect. In fact, to follow Jesus means to suffer. Jesus himself said that was gonna happen. It was the pattern in the New Testament, and it will be something that you and I experience to varying degrees based on where we live and what's going on, but I'm telling you, if you wanna follow Jesus and love his word, you're going to feel it, you're going to experience it. And when we have the opportunity to do that, it may feel like, man, this is too tough. This is too hard. And what Peter's reminding us, man, even angels long to experience this thing that we just take for granted. Uh, Dr. McKnight says this. He says, this is the great privilege of the church age. The enjoyment of the inauguration of God's salvation in Christ. It is so great that even the angels are looking down to gain a view like wedding attendees attempting to steal a glance at the bride before her appearance. Neither the prophets nor the angels experience what the church assumes and enjoys. So as I close, I simply want to say this. No matter where you're at right now, no matter what you have experienced in life, no matter what kind of suffering you are enduring right now, no matter how good it is or hard it is, no matter what's missing, no matter what you long for, Take a moment right now in this space and simply remember you have Jesus. Friends, we have Jesus. Resurrected Jesus is available for you and I to experience the power of the Spirit indwelling our lives transformation, redemption, forgiveness. Way too easy, I take that for granted. This gorgeous space that I live in because of what Jesus did for me, because of what the spirit of Christ is doing in me and in us. Friends, we can't take it for granted. The prophets were looking forward to, to this day. The angels still look down from heaven to try to understand what you and I get to experience. This salvation that we have, it leads to an inheritance. A living hope. And that inheritance is being protected for us by God himself and we are being protected for it by God himself. So don't give up. Don't stop believing. No matter what you've experienced in life, no matter the pain or the difficulty, following God, I promise you, is worth it.